1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of America and Beyond with Paul Sterabin. As you have probably recognized, if you listen to this podcast regularly, I am not Paul Sterabin. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And Paul and I decided that this special edition of the podcast would be me interviewing him about his brand new book, Putin's Exiles, Their Fight for a Better Russia, which is out from Columbia Global Reports in 2024. Paul, welcome to your show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Marshall. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's get right into it. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure, sure. Um, This will be kind of the Russia-inflected version of, of myself, but um, always have been a lover of Russian literature, you know, crime and punishment in my teenage years was one of my great kind of reads that sort of just felt like it opened my eyes. I mean, I was just like, you know, a suburban, you know, middle-class uh, kid growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so this was like, wow, you know, right. It just seemed ex- extremely exotic. So I grabbed the chance that I had as a journalist to go to Russia uh, as the Moscow bureau chief for business week. This was, as it turned out, the first of four years of what has been a very long running uh, tenure for Vladimir Putin. So I arrived at the end of 1999 and one way or another, and you and I have talked about this as times as well, since you have your own background, of course, in Russia as a historian, uh, I've just been fascinated by Russia. virtually every level, you know, the people, the society, the governance, the tragedy, the trauma, uh, you name it. It's its just not a boring story. You know, that's one way to look at it. So um, yeah, I've been going back there visiting. So this book, uh, yeah, this came about more recently, of course, and we can talk about that. But uh, my yeah. Russia fixation sort of, you know, has, has not really abated.
1: Yeah, I don't know who said this, but it was from People always attribute these things to Churchill. Everything's attributed to Churchill, but it wasn't yeah. Churchill. And he said, uh, "The East is not a place; it's a career." <laughs> that sounds <laughs> for right. For many of us, for many of us, Russia is not a place; it's a career. So yeah. let's get to the book. Um, why did you write this book?
0: So it began with an interest in going inside of Russia. My sort of line about this it connects with the East as a career. I've always believed in reporting the story uh, from the inside out, you know, so as a foreign, you know, quote unquote, foreign correspondent, it's less interesting to me what I might think or what my compatriots might think in the West, but, you know, what do the people think on the ground? I'm kind of like a sponge. And it has always occurred to me that there are a lot of prevailing sort of cliches about Russia that are just too easily subscribed to as in the case of all cliches. So I had, convince the publisher that we would do this uh, project from inside of Russia. And I would go to places that, you know, journalists don't typically spend a lot of time in and focus on the society, on its institutions. I mean, things like the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox church, which has always fascinated me for some reason, but alas, the war happened February, 2022. My visa application to the ministry of foreign affairs was just sort of swinging in the wind. I mean, it wasn't a yes, you can come or a no, you can't come. But, you know, the way to interpret that is uh, no, basically, uh, you're not going to be getting <laughs> your visa at any time soon. So I thought, well, if I can talk to the Russians uh, inside of Russia, a million or so of them have fled. Why don't I talk to them outside of Russia? And I just recast the project basically as these exiles, which is a pretty expansive Term, which we could talk about, but essentially this growing Russian diaspora, which was fueled uh, largely by the war and people escaping, getting out for various reasons. So then I, you know, went onto the sort of repertorial aspect of the project to actually visit and meet and talk with uh, some of these people who had left.
1: So, could you tell us a little bit about who you talked to, how you picked them?
0: Yeah. So I really had to kind of narrow it down because uh, most of the exodus has been to former Soviet republics, and among them in particular, places like Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, some Kyrgyzstan, so sort of the Caucasus and former Soviet Central Asia. And like any project, you know, there were just practical limitations to how much you could do how much time you can spend on the road, how much money you're going to, you know, your budget and so forth. So, I thought that the most the two most interesting places I could go to and be absolutely sure of finding people without knowing exactly who I would find were the capitals of Armenia and Georgia, so Yerevan and and Tbilisi respectively, were both of which I had been to previously, so I had some kind of surface familiarity with them and I knew they were relatively Contained places. Uh, I also went to Batumi, which is uh, on the western uh, shores of of Georgia on the Black Sea. So basically, I kind of just parachuted in, and I had made some sort of prearrangements to meet with sort of leaders of civic groups and things like that. And one of them scheduled, for example, in Tbilisi, I'm sorry, in Yerevan, a meeting, just open-ended invitation for any of the Russian. Uh, <laughs> exiles passport holders to meet with me and talk about whatever they wanted about their exile experience and so probably about 15 or so people showed up we spoke for a couple hours i went out to dinner with one of them And so it's just it was just really a kind of you know not so much of a selected group on my part but just people who were interested in talking to me i suppose that in a way is a is a selection and a similar thing in tbilisi as well i mean I did do for this project a lot of Zoom interviews with sort of notable exiles, people like uh, Sergei Guriev in in Paris, who was uh, at the Science Poet in Paris. But but for the most part, you know, I wanted to get a more sort of granular sense of things from just, you know, people almost at at random who would be speaking to me about their, you know, what they were experiencing.
1: Mm -hmm. That's terrific so i'm a historian i'm always interested in the historical background uh, uh, uh we discussed this earlier but the idea of the dissident emigre is hardly new in russian history it it's, goes back to the 19th century if not before and i'm interested in hearing what uh you have to say about the way that these people think about themselves do they put themselves in the tradition of herzen and even lenin do they think of themselves as political
0: exiles so let me yeah I'll, uh... I think the best way to answer that question is to kind of talk about two people who come to mind, and mm-hmm. one of whom f- fits the, that description, and the other, I would say, does not. And both, in a way, are, are typical. So the first person uh, whose story, you know, these 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 people, they've kind of become my uh, characters of, of of the sort. You know, I, I feel like I've absorbed their their stories and thought a lot about them. So Nastia, Nastia's story uh nastia is a young woman who grew up in uh, karelia in a, in a region of northern russia that is uh, on the border with finland and grew up in a village there and her mother told her from day one that she was supposed to have nothing to do with politics that nothing good could come out of any kind of involvement in politics in russia and she heeded that she went to the medical institute in st petersburg and was just consumed with, you know, the need to get her medical degree at that time. They were, you know, St. Petersburg is a fairly liberal city. There were anti-Putin protests and she wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. Uh, when I met her in Yerevan, she told me she would rather put a gun to her head, you know, than, <laughs> than give up her medical degree. Mm-hmm. And yet then the war, you know, the war came, it, it repulsed her, it, it, Uh, she just rethought everything. She fled with her not particularly political husband to Yerevan. And when I met her, she was starting to, you know, she had a kind of coming out. She participated in a public uh, protest against Putin in Yerevan, which was uh, photographed and taped by Russian state media and her mother, saw her back mm-hmm. in Russia and screamed at her and yeah. accused her of being an, an enemy of the state and uh even like a paid you know propaganda tool and you know her mother took that back and and you know Nastia was uh, told me she was now taking lessons in Ukrainian and she hoped that at the end of the war in Ukraine she could go there and help restore the country. Um, and so just really a, almost like a personal, you know, quote unquote, woke Russian. I don't mean that in an ironic yeah, way, no, but I just, you mean. Yeah. yeah, kind of rethinking everything. So I don't think Nastia saw herself in any kind of larger political context, historical context, as you're suggesting. But then also in Yerevan, I met one of the foot soldiers for uh, Alexei Navalny, you know, even though Navalny is in a prison camp, you know, far, far removed in in, in Russia. uh, He has a very active organization on the ground, people in throughout the diaspora who are working for him. And I met this fellow Daniel in Yerevan, who I think does meet that kind of revolutionary kind of political context. I mean, these are hard people. They reminded me almost, you know, the the IRA men used to be called the hard men. you know, sort of really seasoned and battle-tested, and very conscious of having put themselves out there and having made a kind of irrevocable decision. And so Daniel was was like that. You know, he was from Siberia, Omsk. He was at the vigil when Navalny was was poisoned there. He was on the payroll of the Navalny team, and <clears throat> from Yerevan, he told me he was doing various you know political things that extended back into. Russia, and I had the sense of a person, and I have the sense of the Navalny team (laughs) like this as well, as people who are conscious of the revolutionary tradition, uh, conscious that everything is preparedness. It's not, you know, at some point, Vladimir Putin will go. It could be in office. It could be, you know, there could be a succession, but they are prepared, you know, for that moment. And they know, you know, it's 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 the hour after the uh, the the revolution or after the the fall of the the czar, or his murder in the case of the Bolsheviks, when everything is on the line and you have to be organized for that moment. So I think you have a nucleus of pretty well organized exiles. By no by no means, you know, we're not talking about huge numbers in terms of all of the people who've left, but you know, how big were the numbers of the Bolsheviks? You know, you mentioned, yeah. uh, you know, Lenin and, and Trotsky who had sort of an uh, interesting and somewhat tense relationship with the Bolsheviks while you we were in exile. But nevertheless, they're all working for the same goal and uh, just this kind of hardcore that pretty much dedicated their lives, you know, to that one
1: aim. So you you do have some people like that in uh, among yeah, the people the- I met. That thanks for introducing these two figures. And it's a nice segue to my next question. Is it possible to separate anti-war among these people? Is it possible to separate anti-war sentiment from a more general program, one that is presumably anti-Putin or anti-autocratic? Because my sense is that a lot of people left because of the war. Full stop. But there seems to be these other people that have all been camp, for example, who have broader goals. Is that reflected in your conversations? Yes, I mean, I think
0: that there are definitely people. When you say left because of the war, there are there's a there were many people who left when Putin, uh, in the fall of 2022, so this is some months after the war began in February, levied a conscription. So it mm-hmm. became clear to them that they would be, or at least they could be, vulnerable to being drafted and actually being put in the army and having to go to the battlefront. Uh, There was a first wave that left, if you bring the clock back to February, just when the invasion began. And that was for various reasons. I mean, some people, I talked to one fellow who was a Moscow advertising executive doing pretty well in Moscow. He had done a little bit of anti-Putin kind of volunteer activity, but he was not, you know, by no means like a full-time, you know, professional activist. And when the war Began, he was shocked as as I think most Russians uh, were. They didn't expect that, and he just he jumped into his his car, into his you know his his Mazda, his S, and and with his dog, his uh, big fluffy Samoyan. and he just drove as fast as he could to the border with uh, Latvia. You know, st- stopping only to fill his uh, anti anxiety uh, prescription. Uh, he thought the border might be sealed. I mean, that was one thought you know how it is in russia i mean pe- people it's not like in the west they they there is a kind of habit of mind that you know tomorrow could really be dramatically different than today yeah. it's a it's a kind of you know mental piece of equipment or something that i think people have maybe they don't even know that they have it but but these things t- trigger it so he was like that you know so you had these people they, they just wanted to get out because they thought That would be better than staying there Uh, and then you had the people who left because they knew they might get conscripted they are not necessarily political in the way that we you know might
1: the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, I should add a historical note. In, In every modern war in the 20th century, you have people that want to avoid being drafted every single one including That's, americans this is not unusual
0: <laughs> one of the books i i read or, or looked at in in and thinking about more generally about exiles was one that was written by a a, a resistor uh an american who fled to canada
1: yeah it's not the, unusual
0: at, at the, but what is unusual though is the numbers i think and or at least you can compare the numbers and i sure. don't think that the numbers in the vietnam case i don't have them right at hand were were overwhelming numbers i mean people found a
1: lot of different ways of course to resist yeah, I, I don't know draft. i just know that uh, it's pretty common to try to avoid the draft in it, every war in every country
0: the germans i mean in in the uh <clears throat> even i think in the 19th century i mean they were i found examples yeah, of that it uh, was, well, japanese
1: yeah. you know going to south yeah. america well when they uh, levied a riot in new york during the civil war there was an enormous riot <laughs> you could pay somebody to to take your right. place. Yeah. So it's this uh, that, is not a particularly Russian thing.
0: <laughs> no, but 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 if we're talking about the Russian context, just to quibble just a little bit with that is is I don't think you know when the Nazis in, invaded in June of nineteen forty one, that was, you know, what's now called the Great Patriotic War. I think yeah. ordinary Russians felt a, a threat that they certainly did not feel in I think this that's war. Right in yeah. Ukraine and you saw a lot of partisan warfare back there yeah. as well, which I think is an indication that some people, they don't even need an in, informal in instructions yeah. from the army. They're ready to do battle. This is, I mean, you haven't asked me this, but I, this is sort of a separate issue. I, I don't think this is a terribly popular war. Putin's war. Why do Did you think that? that anecdotally from all of the contacts that I still have in Russia, uh, from what I read, uh, there is actually surprising amounts of information available if you really look for it from inside of Russia. I'm I'm almost afraid to mention some of them, but for example, the journal that it's publicly published in, in the Lake Baikal region out in Siberia that mm-hmm. has many articles about the young people who have gone and are have died and have come back in their coffins and their funerals and all that sort of stuff and and about how they have to uh you know the putin has not dared to do another conscription but they have to pay uh people a a fair amount of money i mean in in relative terms compared to what like they might make if they just work for the year at some job uh, a large bonus in order to conscript Mm -hmm. and promises of death benefits and things like that and and many of the conscripts are not ethnically russian they're far from you know they're not from really? elites in moscow and saint petersburg uh you have uh mounting protests from some mothers and wives you know whose uh, sons or husbands are on the front lines not
1: exactly anti-war but
0: asking like why is why aren't they being rotated out
1: Well, and and as you know, this is also a Russian historical tradition. It happened in Afghanistan. Yeah. Mothers Against the War in Afghanistan, which was important. In in Chechnya, they actually led
0: led the charge in the first Chechen war that Yeltsin mounted. And I think many people credit them with helping to bring that war to a pretty, you know, not a particularly winning conclusion on the Russian side. It was kind of a kind of a stalemate. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've seen, I mean, Putin's Russia is different. It's more repressive. And I think people are more reluctant to express themselves publicly, but I, I will stand
1: on, I don't think this is a particularly popular war. I, I think this is a kind of a misconception in the West as they think of Putin as Stalin. And that's not right. In the sense that there really is discussion of the war in Russia. Mm-hmm. You can find it online in a lot of places. Uh, oh yes, you want a... to Be careful about what you say, Yes, there's discussion. Well, there's a chapter
0: in, in the book that I call The Information Resistance, which is about media outlets that moved out of Russia into yeah. various places, usually in Eastern Europe, uh, who are continuing. TV Rain is an example. It's now based in Amsterdam. But they're broadcasting or they're streaming in the Russian language on channels like YouTube, which... Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, or not, remain open in Russia. I guess you know Putin doesn't want to shut off access to their, you know, the cartoons that kids watch and all the uh, all the non political fare that's on YouTube. But in any case, for any Russian inside of Russia who chooses to avail himself or herself of this kind of information, there's an enormous amount of you know yeah, there coverage, is. commentary, and so forth. Um I mean, it's also my impression that, that many Russians choose not to consume that because they just through avoidance or you know, it's exhausting. They just
1: hard you know, to blame them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some latent sense of guilt or or for whatever reason, you know, uh, but 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 the information is is there. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's not yeah, like in I, Stalin's I, I time. Don't think
1: most, I don't think Americans at least know this, that there's actually a lot of discussion and uh you know because the bbc will lead with somebody you know getting arrested for saying something bad about the russian army yeah and that does happen it does <laughs> but it doesn't happen very often
0: um, well we'll find out what happens in march but there is the uh, a candidate uh you know vladimir putin is running for yet another term uh in election scheduled for the middle of march and there is a "Quote unquote opposition candidate yeah. uh, Boris Nemtchin and his last name it's funny because it's the sort of the Russian root word for for hope. hope. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who's sort of a familiar figure. But what's striking is uh, to gather the petitions, to the signatures for the petitions that you know to put him on the ballot. Uh, by all accounts, something like 150,000 or so Russians have publicly. Yeah. You know, gone to you know the registration hall, put their names down, their passport details, and so forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, and the, that, that's kind of a brave thing to brave do. People, yeah, no yeah. question. They may people. not even be the last. I heard some some talk that you know the the some of these signatures are going to be struck
1: down. Yeah, that's what I heard too. That the election commission was fiddling dead, around. They're with dead it. dead souls, or yeah, you know, something. something. Yeah. But but yeah. but nevertheless
0: just uh, to me another indication
1: that there's something stirring there yeah no i i agree with you well let's turn back to the um exiles again um yeah uh, and you kind of already answered this but um uh, is it organized does it have a leader and is that leader alexei navalny (laughs) right so
0: kind of a complicated question um and we can use a parallel from Russian history, because sometimes the exiles are much better organized than at other times. I mean, I think that the Bolsheviks were pretty well, the people aligned with them were pretty well organized in their time. And they had much more of a kind of a model that came from sort of, you know, the Marxist Leninist kind of th- thinking mm-hmm. on how all this is to be done, you know, the vanguard, democratic so, like,
1: centralism yeah. <laughs> a theory. Yeah,
0: yeah. something <laughs> like that. Um now uh, we have a more fragmented uh community of exiles, and you know politically speaking, it's probably not as bad as you know when all of the whites left after the Russian Revolution and they became just, you know famously fragmented, and some of them just lived in this nether world where yes, you know, one day there'll be the Czar, you know, a new Czar will return and all that thing and they just you know, fought with each other, and it was, you know, pretty pretty tragic. Uh, I think now there is a lot of infighting, there's, a, you know, there are egos, you know, clashing. Uh, and there's even, you know, debate about this principle of how organized or how uniform they should be. So many of the more prominent voices in the exile movement now, like uh, Sir, Sergei Guriev, I, m- I mentioned, who's about to become actually the dean of the London Business School, he's the kind of person who could be a future prime minister in a post-Putin government. I mean, he's all, you know, for unity and speaking with one voice. The Navalny people are are not. Um, I mean, Alexei Navalny is the number one figure in the sense of being the most re- recognizable, and I think also in the sense of having the most charisma and he you know after he was poisoned he was in germany he recovered and then he made this sort of philosophical decision uh which probably some people think was was crazy to go back to russia to subject himself to whatever you know he knew he would be brave man yes you know this act of defiance but that has given him he's almost like a living martyr so that has given him a certain standing above all others you know you have mikhail Horakowski, who's in London, you know, Horakowski was in the 1990s in Russia, he was one of the leading oligarchs. Uh, and then he clashed with Putin and was put in jail for, I think it was nine years, something like that, and finally cut a deal that he would leave Russia and never come back. And mm-hmm. he's adhered to that deal. But I think because of his past as an oligarch and because he's been so long- Removed from Russia, he doesn't have the kind of you know standing and and stature that uh, Navalny does, or somebody like Gary Kasparov. I mean, you know, he's a former chess champion, so forth. But his connection to Russia is is you know many years in the past as well. So some of these figures, you know, in some ways have a greater platform in the in the West than they do in inside of Russia, which is where it, it really counts. And so they're divided. Uh, I don't think so much among aims. I mean, they all, of course, desire to get rid of Putin. They all say they stand for some form of, you know, democratic, republican government as mm-hmm. well. I mean, constitutional republic uh, uh, rule. And and some say, as Navalny now says, actually, that the flaw in the post-Soviet system was that the president, uh, it was too strong a presidential system. They gave the president too many powers, and it should be more like a parliamentary republic. So you have Mm -hmm. that sort of discussion as well. But the short answer to your question is that there's there's not that much unity among them, and that is somewhat
1: debilitating to the movement. Yeah. It's a nice segue again. Uh, How much do... Uh, ordinary Russians, if I can posit the ordinary Russian, which doesn't really exist, how much do ordinary Russians know about the exile opposition, and and what particularly do they know about Navalny? I think they know a fair amount about Navalny, because
0: he's received uh, he's not entirely ignored, you know, or hasn't been by the sort of the state media, because they, they know about the prosecution of Navalny, and I'm sure they know about, you know, the poisoning and so forth. I don't know that they follow I tend to doubt that they follow closely exile, uh, you know, the, the sort of the political aspects of the exile movement. But one interesting thing that's been happening is that there are popular Russian performers like comedians and, and musicians who are in exile, who do have, you know, a real following inside of Russia, uh, for example, the singer uh, Monetrichka. She's she was very big inside of Russia. She she's now outside, and she's written this anthem. Uh, yeah, perisjavu, I will survive. I survive, will. Yeah. yeah, and and it's very popular. And, and now, uh, I call this sort of the cultural resistance, which you know this can be sometimes more effective. We saw this in Soviet times than. You know, a joke or, or a song can, can resonate more than just, you know, somebody holding up a political, you know, placard or something. And so well, the... a
1: comedian, a, a, a television star comedian became the president of Ukraine. Well, so... there you go. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, Maxim Galkin, who is the husband of uh, Alec Pugacheva, you know, Galkin is is uh, in this kind of exile anti-war camp, as is Alec Pugacheva, who is a, who is a revered
1: yeah, she was, is goes yeah. back
0: into Soviet times. Yeah, but anyway, some indication of how the Kremlin is thinking about this is they're now going after. They're cracking. They're trying to crack down on these prominent exiles <clears throat> in countries where they want to perform, like uh, Thailand and Indonesia and Dubai. They're trying to get the authorities there to to keep them from performing. Uh, one rock band, the rock B two, they they had to be they ended up in Israel, but they wanted to perform in in Thailand, and I think it's clear that the the Kremlin was kind of directing this effort to keep them from performing. So they, you know, th- there's there's a battle going on that I think is almost invisible to most people in the West, partly because it's conducted entirely in the Russian language. Between the sort of Putin camp inside of Russia and the anti-Putin camp outside of Russia, Mm -hmm. and it's you know—it has the flavor of a civil war, really. I mean, they—you cannot even fathom the depths of of hatred that
1: you know towards the other that exist in. That's a that's another nice that's another nice segue. Uh, And the question that occurs to me is: How seriously does Putin and Putin's circle? take these people are they
0: afraid of them yes i think at some level uh they are i mean putin is refers to them as as scum uh yeah and you know as, as traitors essentially and <clears throat> you know scared i i think they get under his skin mm-hmm. and he he claims that you know, russia has benefited from this kind of cleansing of you know the this this vermin right. uh but but at, but at the same time uh you know there are consequences i mean estimates vary but some not insignificant chunk of the sort of the high tech you know brain power yeah led uh russia after the war places like you know moscow and st petersburg were you know fairly liberal places where these <laughs> workers were and they they can more easily work remotely uh, in, in many cases. So, you know, that was part of their calculus and, and leaving, uh, but that's not good, you know, for the, for for Russia, no. for, for the Kremlin, you know, does he think that they're about to topple him? I mean, I don't know. I, I think there are, there are anarchists who, who are certainly seeking to kill him and blow up, you know, which has <laughs> happened you. before. I met a little, you know, a segue, a little, Kropotkin in, in Yerevan, uh, Andre, we met, you know, I was visiting a Ukrainian uh, refugee assistance center, just this little kind of hole in the wall building in some, you know, some alleyway in Yerevan and Andre, you know, this 19 year old kid with shining eyes, you know, I began Pouring out his his you know heart you know phrases of you know Bakunin and Kropotkin, I mean just yeah. a, everything and this is also a Maybe Russian tradition yeah. tradition and you know the generational you know his his parents were cowards because yeah. even though in the in the home they would describe their you know opposition to the war and to Putin they would never make that a public you know take a public stand there but he did and he felt so strongly about it that he fled. And I think they were in Turkey at the time. Anyway, I met him in Yerevan. And he told me he was devoting his his meager, you know, Bitcoin savings to some anarchist <laughs> in, yeah. in Russia that was uh, uh, that is credibly uh, uh, <coughs> credited with uh, destroying railroad tracks, yeah. for example, to disturb. You know the 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 shipments because uh, the the rail networks, as we know, yeah. are so important in Russia. So anyway, you have somebody like that who's who's. I mean, if if Putin's train blew up someday with yeah. Putin in it, that, that, I don't think we should consider that to be like the biggest shock. You know, there are people who are actively seeking. To eliminate
1: him. Well, in addition to the Ukrainians who've been pretty in active addition to him. the Ukrainians, yeah.
0: but but believe yeah. me, there are Russians who are. I mean, I talked to Russians who are uh, actively assisting the Ukrainian war cause,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and th- it's a big debate among the exiles actually on the moral you know, the morality of this, whether you are helping Ukrainians to defend themselves or are you simply killing yeah. you know fellow Russians. Uh, but for some of them, they've crossed that line mm-hmm. and they're contributing money, you know, for example, to purchase drones that can uh, kill Russian tanks, which have mm-hmm. Russian, you know,
1: soldiers inside of soldiers them. On them yeah.
0: So, yeah, yeah. so that, that whole thing. So I think Putin is certain, certainly... I think they've gripped him in some way. He doesn't take kindly to this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. revolt. Yeah. We saw that with Purgosian as well, right? No, you he does The warlord no. that uh, yeah. almost surely the Kremlin had eliminated. Yeah. With Kizik Hans free shoes, motion sounds something like this.
1: Let's just put it this way. There are some who might argue that the taste for what these dissident emigres have on offer in Russia is relatively slight. That being liberal democratic government of the Western kind, mm-hmm. that they would more or less prefer Putin 71, he can't last forever. Yeah. They would more or less prefer another voiced, another uh, leader or chief. Mm -hmm. to kind of take the reins and i've actually heard russian friends of mine this is a long time ago that who basically argued that russian is russia is ungovernable Mm -hmm. that it can't operate like it's you know i had a friend that used to say russia at the nicarmania russia it's not germany right and it's just ungovernable by uh western mechanisms Mm -hmm. Um, i i don't know how widespread these feelings are but i just wondered if you could speculate a bit about you know, it, you know, say, for instance, that they did get a shot at making Russia a liberal democracy. Would Russians want that? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that every generation or two, Russia does get a shot at, at something like that. I mean, it had yeah. that, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, well, even more in the, in the the years leading to the collapse, you you had a genuine, you know, glasnost and, and, and yeah. I mean, you, I mean, that was a real thing. And I think it came... Although Gorbachev, of course, uh, the last Soviet leader, uh, unleashed that it. There was a lot to unleash. I mean, there was a popular demand, I think, for political parties, for publication of all you know, whatever people wanted to really write about, whether it was in literature or in politics and, and all sorts of things. So, so I think there is at the grassroots um, a genuine desire for that. There is a certain fear. I think it's a complicated question. I mean, there's a fear. As it's been expressed to me, I forget the Russian word, but there are all kinds of Russian words for, like, d- disorder uh, and, you know, like, <laughs> chaos. So, so there is a certain feeling that associates democracy with chaos because you know the barriers kind of come down, and yeah. then you know the, the 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 predatory aspects of society assert themselves. Yeah. So there are people when Putin came on who said, "Yes, we need this, you know, the silny chelovek. We need the strong man yeah. to keep such forces at bay." But I don't think that's necessarily. I don't really see that as a universal, you know, feeling. Um, so, yeah, I
1: wouldn't either. I just have met it before. Yeah,
0: um, and you find and, interesting, and, you know, p- populism. But the other thing is is, is sort of a, also an aspect of the Russian experience. And part of my fascination with the Russian Orthodox Church is that, unlike the Catholic Church, there's no, uh, like in, in Orthodoxy, there's no Pope, you know, there's no one right. source of authority. And in fact, the way it works is you have this institution of the wise, the Staritz, the wise man, the elder. Yeah. And guess what? How is he selected? He's <laughs> selected by by the people of the faith yeah they just decide like who who is wise and who has charisma. uh and yeah, I met once a fi- such a figure once at the monastery in the Optinopustin, that the uh, dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov modeled his his staritz figure after a person there. I mean, it's been around forever and and still I met I met this businessman's uh, you know wise man, his uh, you know the one he told everything to, of course, but, but so, so that's a, that's a very populist, you know, there's a certain anti-authoritarian aspect of Russian society that I think people don't always appreciate and it comes out in their humor it comes out in, in lots of things, but that's one aspect of it. So, you know, it's an open question. I don't know that it's ever really been tested, you know, can, can Russia govern itself? Well, Part of the
1: reason, yeah, part of the reason I'm interested in this question and that I ask it is, is that in about 1999, Mm -hmm. is that when Putin came to power? Was it 1999? He came 2000. He was appointed president at the
0: very, on the very last day of 1999.
1: Yeah, I was very optimistic that Russia was on the way to liberal democracy and multi-party politics and so on and so forth. And I Mm -hmm. said so to my regret. Because uh, I really was optimistic. I thought that, you know, that, okay, here we go. We're going to see something yeah. that looks a little bit like Germany. Um, well, I think the West helped way. to
0: screw things up, though, as well. I mean, I wrote a piece when I was in Washington, and it's was probably 1998, about all these different ways in which I thought the Clinton administration uh, got things wrong and its Russia approach. But not just the Clinton administration, but it was partly they... They insisted on this kind of Big Bang conversion to Western free markets and, you know, yeah. everything associated with that, I think it had more to do with c- capitalism and the economy than it did necessarily with with politics. And Yeltsin, you know, and his advisors, uh, people like Gaidar, ac- accepted a lot of that. And I think many Russians were horrified at the result. I mean, there was, you know, inflation, there was just a massive decrease in their standard of living. And they didn't, you know, banks failed. I mean, the Russian financial crisis in August of 1998, you know, which preceded uh, Putin, I think helped convince them that this wasn't necessarily the best path. So I think that's one reason, uh, among others, that this initial phase or this effort of creating a liberal democracy with the collapse of the Soviet Union did not work out. And Putin is, you know, is, comes in as almost this kind of Thermidor type. Yeah, that's figure. right. That's
1: that's right. And I don't think that most Americans appreciate what the 1990s was for the Russians because oh, it was truly really tough, horrible. Really it tough. was unbelievably horrible. I remember going there in 1991 and seeing just ordinary people, yeah. very well, these are Muscovites, ordinary people, well-trained, university educated on the street Selling stuff, just in Talkuchki, in these in these crowds, yeah. people just go sell things. Well, everywhere they, I was they'd in, been reduced to
0: poverty. I was in Minsk in 1994, and people, you know, there was maybe a little bit of horse meat or something available in the butcher right. shops, right. but not not a whole lot. Yeah, else. I don't think
1: people appreciate the way Russians think about it because it was truly right. a time of troubles. It was horrible. Time of and, troubles. And, and, and you know, and it you know, it really impoverished them. They were wondering where their next meal was going to come from, and, and you know, you know, and they think of themselves as very modern people, well educated. They can do all the things that anybody else can do. They, they are they well are selling their stuff on the street. Like yeah. what happened, you know? They they are well educated. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and it was shocking to them, uh and I certainly understand that. And a want you know desire to turn to some sort of order, well. I get that too. Like, you know, the inflation, like I I remember changing money and getting these enormous stacks of rubles, just like incredible amounts of rubles for a few dollars and just thinking, wow, this is a mess. Yeah. Also the Um, oligarchs, you know, were a real thing
0: and they were very much, they were intimately associated with the Yeltsin government. I mean, they did this, Loans for shares deals, where basically they propped up Yeltsin's, you know, reelection in return for these, you know, penny on the dollar shares and all these incredibly valuable natural resource extraction companies. That's how, yeah. you know, people like Mikhail Prokofsky came Krakowski, yeah. into to power. So, so, uh, yeah. I mean, the Russians have a lot of associations with that. But just to circle back to your question, I don't. To me, in my mind, that does not mean you know the question has been answered about whether Russia could handle that, you know, do sort of a regular, what we think of as a regular governance. It was once said to me, I mean, just to give you a slightly different take on it by somebody with Putin, actually, we were having lunch, one of the few times I could kind of get a a Putin guy out of the office and, you know, tell me what he thought. And after maybe a glass of wine or something, he said, you know, Paul, the problem with Russia is just too big. You know, I mean, we have too many time zones. It's just too large. It's almost impossible to govern from the center. And yet we're almost doomed to have to do that. So, so, you know, one of my exiles, to come back to the exiles, is a Siberian nationalist. Uh, and he, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you meet these, cra- it's it's great when you meet these people. This is a brilliant Russian physicist, yeah. an Elon Musk type, who <laughs> actually helped devise with the Ukrainian physicist friend, an, an anti-missile uh, defense system that was deployed in the early days of Yeah, you know, and he is a Siberian nationalist, s- sincerely. Uh, and he believes that, you know, they should be a Republic of Siberia that will be liberal and democratic and all these kinds mm. of things. So there are various, you know, if you if you want to sort of extend yourself in a speculative fashion into a post-Putin future, there are plenty of Russians, you know, who, who think about these things, who think Russia should be more federated or broken. I don't know, Switzerland, or I think Khodorkovsky yeah. actually has a Swiss model where the, I'm not a, by far an expert in, in Swiss, but Cantons. I understand that. The cantons, I guess, have a fair degree of autonomy.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I just, yeah well, something I don't know like about that, and, yeah. and or
0: even America has. Although I think we've become pretty imperial, and but that's a yeah. different subject. But we, you know, our states have. Yep. So, so you don't have that in Russia. I mean, the governors are appointed now by the appointed. Yeah. Yeah, and and so you just, you know, what they call the vertical vlast. You know, the vertical of of power, the hierarchy uh, of power, is yeah. is really what informs, you know, how this what people are used to, accustomed to, and what, you know, is still very much stamped, you know, uh, in their system. But I'm an optimist, so I will confess I to that. I too. Yeah, I, me too. I'm just an optimist. I think, I think
1: it's going to go great. I think change.
0: <laughs> I think in Russia, it's one of those places where every, as I say, every generation or two, uh, yeah. you know, something will change when Putin
1: goes, whoever yeah. he goes, whenever he goes. Yeah. Yep. That's absolutely true. And that's um, Well, I think we, we've, we've taken up an, enough of your very valuable time. I have a kind of traditional final question that I ask everybody when I do interviews on my shows. Yes. And that is, so I'll ask it now, what are you working on now? What am I working
0: on now? Um, I am doing a, a piece about it's a, it's a magazine piece on what with Trump's possible coming back to power, As a uh, hook, are more Americans thinking about living abroad? And you know, I don't wouldn't want to say necessarily getting into going to exile, but is that becoming a more attractive option for them? Uh, So I'm thinking about you know that that
1: uh, that piece. And presumably, we're not talking Canada or Mexico here.
0: (laughs) Mexico (laughs) Mexico has become quite popular in Mexico City, but um some of the new havens are you know por- portugal
1: yeah portugal that's uh, Spain, what i hear about yeah italy i mean y- you know i have friends i have friends who are my age i'm Asia 62 too. talk about portugal <laughs>
0: yeah yeah i think a lot of americans are tired you know you know they waking up to the school shootings and things like that so yeah. it's a complicated thing but anyway um uh, yeah i'm thinking about uh, All right. that will be that will be an immediate next for me and beyond that we'll just have to see uh yeah
1: know. all right well paul thanks very much for speaking with us today thank you uh marshall right. i appreciate it all right Bye 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 bye